Well, it's great to be with you today as we are wrapping up our Joshua series called Reset. And as we're moving into the fall, we are definitely excited about uh, the Vernon Hills launch as a part of everything else that's coming back online as we move into the fall. Uh, invite you to be a part of everything that's going on here at Christ Church. And to that end, uh, we're going to have a day of prayer and fasting this coming Wednesday, uh, September 2nd. Would love for you to sign up and be a part of that as we pray for personal spiritual renewal, uh, the church to be the church in these times, as well as just issues in our nation and around the world. So let's be praying together. Let's be seeking God's face together. Let's be leaning into what he has for us. And that's a great start to our message today, uh, because for uh, one more week, we're going to be seeing from the story of Joshua and the Israelites in the Old Testament book of Joshua, uh, how this book speaks to us in our day and in our time. So a little bit of context before we jump in today. Uh, so far in the story of Joshua, we've seen some amazing, miraculous acts that God has done. We've seen how he parted the Jordan River so that the Israelites could cross over into the promised land of Canaan. We've seen how uh, he conquered the city of Jericho and the walls came crumbling down uh, through a mighty act of God. And our story picks up today uh, after that Battle. The Battle of Jericho is probably the most famous battle in uh, all of the Old Testament, um, certainly in the book of Joshua. And it's the story of God's people marching around the city. You may remember once a day for six days, and then on the seventh day, the army marched around, they gave a shout, they blew the trumpets, and then God himself won the battle when the walls fell. And our story today picks up in the aftermath of that story. And, and the context is the instructions that God gave to Israel after the defeat of Jericho. He said, once the town was defeated, everything was to be devoted to destruction. All of the people, all of the possessions, all of their belongings, the cattle, the livestock, everything was to be destroyed. And chapter seven of Joshua opens up uh, with one of the more foreboding uh, lines in all of scripture. And it says, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Now, the devoted things were all of those possessions that they were commanded to destroy. And, and the beginning of this episode or scene in this story is that Israel disobeyed that command. And in particular, one Israelite named Achan took some of those things for himself that were supposed to be devoted to God. Now, this concept of devoted, devoted things uh, in Scripture it refers to a ceremonial sacrifice of things or giving them over irrevocably to God in a way that they could never be taken back or used for other purposes. So usually that was accomplished by destroying them uh, or it was accomplished by putting them in a treasury uh, for God's temple. And in the case of Jericho, all of the possessions were, were to be destroyed, but silver and gold and possessions of that like, uh, possessions of iron and bronze vessels uh, were to be put in the treasury for God. Now, incidentally, you can read all of these details. Uh, I don't have time today to read the actual text, but would encourage you, uh, maybe um, with your family, to sit around and read this afternoon uh, the detailed account here in Joshua 7. But for our purposes today, uh, we'll just sort of talk through this story together. But what Achan did, uh, this Israelite, was instead of following those, those instructions of God, he took some of these possessions for himself, and we're told that God burned with anger. God saw what Achan had done, even though it was hidden from everyone else, and it says that his anger came upon the Israelites. And notice how the actions 
right here at the onset, the actions of one person affected so many. Now, at first blush, this may seem unfair. And for those of us who live in an individualistic society, um, we don't understand how the sins of one could affect uh, the whole. But I think it's worth noting that for anybody in any society, our own actions affect so much more than just ourselves. Uh, the choices that we make, the actions that we take, uh, have implications not only in our own lives, but on the lives of everyone around us uh, that we know and love. So in this, in this case, in biblical times, there was a strong sense of community. And when, when Achan sinned, it brought the stain of sin upon all of Israel. Now, we're going to see more about God's anger in response to this in just a bit. Uh, but at this point, it's just the backdrop for what happens next. And we're going to see that when disobedience comes, when Israel disobeyed God, things began to unravel quickly. And the first way this happened is that Joshua, when he began to enter the next battle, relied on his own strategy rather than on the voice of God, and his army was defeated. Now, in every other instance up to this in the book of Joshua, we hear the words, the Lord said to Joshua. And then we find that Joshua obeyed, and God gave him success. But those lines are conspicuously absent in Joshua 7. Instead, it says, after the battle of Jericho, Joshua sent spies to the next city, which was the city of Ai. And they came back with an overconfident assessment. They said, there's not too many people living in Ai. Just send two or 3,000 of our soldiers. No need to send everyone because the inhabitants of Ai are so few. But when they went up against Ai, they found themselves utterly defeated, fleeing for their lives. It says the Ai soldiers killed 36 of the Israelite army, and they all came back humiliated. And then further, it says, when all the people heard about this, their hearts melted and became like water, is the way it's described in the text. Now, this was a complete reversal of the way things had been. Earlier in Joshua, we read that when the Israelites came across the river, everyone who lived in Canaan, their spirits fell. When they heard about the power of God behind this nation of Israel, they were the ones who trembled with fear and their hearts melted. And that very same language is here used about the Israelites. The fear that had gripped the Canaanites was now gripping the children of Israel. And so when Joshua heard about this, he was devastated. So much so that he questioned God and his purposes for bringing them into Canaan altogether. Joshua, who earlier, his fame was spreading throughout Canaan. Uh, when they crossed over the Jordan, it says that the people revered him in the same way that they did Moses. Well, now in response to this defeat, we find Joshua with his face in the dirt, complaining before God, saying, why did you even bring us here in the first place if you're going to lead us into destruction? And this further highlights the reversal of fortunes that came through the sin of disobedience that Achan and the nation of Israel had committed. Things were unraveling quickly. And there's a lesson in this for us, isn't there? When we fail to do what is right, things do unravel for us. And not only for us, very often for the people around us in ways that we never would have intended, never would have anticipated. It's a sobering truth and one that ought to cause us to lean in and consider the importance of obedience in the way that it's communicated to us in this passage. So the first thing we want to see is that when Israel disobeyed, 
things began to unravel quickly. But as the story goes on, perhaps the, the, the center point of this story or the part that um, we that we really want to lean into and take away is the way that God responded to Israel's sin and to this unraveling that came as a result. So remember, Joshua is on his face before God. He seems to have forgotten all of God's promises about leading them into victory throughout the land of Canaan. And he's regretting ever crossing the Jordan River in the first place. And the way God responded had some components to it that reveal his character in a way that I hope for you and me will give us a reason to worship God in a way that maybe we haven't considered before. The first thing that God did was he spoke the hard truth to Joshua. He saw Joshua on his face in the dirt, and the first thing he said was, get up. He called Joshua to his feet. And then what he did was he detailed the severity of Israel's sin. He said, when you sinned against me in this way, not only did you take these possessions for yourself by stealing them, but you also lied and you broke the covenant that I had with you. And he detailed exactly what Israel had done and why their sin was so serious. And then he explained why they had been defeated in battle. Remember, Joshua didn't know about Achan's sin, or at least apparently we have no reason in the text to believe that Joshua knew about it. So he didn't know why God's hand was removed and that they were defeated at Ai. And so God explained to him, it's because you have sinned and broken my covenant that I am not with you when you go against your enemies. And more than that, he said, I will not be with you anymore unless you remove this stain of sin from among you, unless you remove these devoted things from among you. And in doing so, he defined the parameters for a continued relationship with him. So those are four important things. God called Joshua to his feet. He detailed the severity of Israel's sin. He explained why they had been defeated in battle. And he defined the requirement for a continued relationship with him. God spoke the hard truth to Joshua. And not only did he do that, he then told Joshua how to make things right. He said to go to the people and have them prepare themselves for God to do another work among them. Now, this was familiar language because before they had crossed the Jordan River, God said the very same thing to Joshua. He said, have the people consecrate themselves or remind themselves that they are set apart to be my chosen people. And then tomorrow, I'm going to do a wonderful, amazing thing among you. Interestingly, using that same language, he says, have the people consecrate themselves and prepare themselves for I'm going to do something tomorrow. Now, to be sure, addressing Israel's sin and parting the river for them to cross were two very different things. But the fact that that language is identical is a way that the writer of this book is signaling for you and for me, this is something to pay attention to. It's as if God is saying, get ready because tomorrow is going to be a big day. And then he said, not only should they be prepared, but on that next day, on that big day, what he was going to do was to purge those devoted things, to purge that sinful stain from among the people of Israel. And he was going to do it in a very specific way. He was going to call them forward by tribe and then by clan and then by household and then finally by individual until he would reveal who the sinful culprit was. It was a ceremonial process 
um, of exposing that sin before all of Israel so that it could be out in the light and be dealt with. And if they were to do this, then God said, then and only then will my presence return and you will again be able to stand against your enemies. And so what we see here is that God is acting with respect for himself and with respect for his people, Israel, by speaking the truth in love. It's one of the core commands in the New Testament. We're called as followers of Jesus, those who believe in God, to speak the truth in love. And here God gives an amazing example of doing just that when his people had sinned against him. God spoke the truth about their sin, and he spoke love to his people in providing a way for them to make it right. And what we see in this scene shows us something remarkable about God. God is a self-respecting being. Maybe you haven't thought about God in that particular way before, but I think that's what emerges from this text uh, in the language that he uses, uh, in the way that he speaks to Joshua, and in the way that he invites them into a continued relationship with him. In verse 12, he said to Joshua, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. What a self-respecting statement. God could not have been more clear with the Israelites when he told them, stay away from the possessions of Jericho. And here, he could not be more clear in defining the way that Israel could be made right after that sin. And his anger is not unwarranted or uncontrolled, but quite the opposite. It's justified, it's measured, and it's clearly explained. God doesn't lose his control. He doesn't lose his cool. He doesn't seek to harm Israel in a way that he's retaliating against them. But instead, he dignifies Joshua and the Israelites by explaining their offense and giving them a clear pathway of restoration. Now, to be sure, this is not an easy path. Uh, in fact, it was one of the harshest punishments or the harshest sort of rituals to go through in all of the Old Testament. In fact, throughout the book of Joshua, we find uh, some of the most harsh language in all of the Bible about destruction and killing and annihilation of the enemies of God. And so this is not an easy path, but it's a way that shows respect and dignity to the people in order to find their way back to God. And incidentally, um, the killing and destruction that comes throughout this chapter is not the, the rash anger of a bloodthirsty deity. No, it's the morally appropriate judgment of a self-respecting God. God demonstrated respect for himself and for his people by speaking the truth in love. I just want to talk for just a minute about this idea of self-respect that we, that we see so clearly displayed in God himself in this passage. I'm no expert on self-respect, but it's easy enough to find articles about self-respect online. And in one article from uh, the School of Psychology, no, excuse me, the School of Philosophy at Harvard, good grief, the School of Philosophy at Stanford University, uh, we, we have some categories laid out for us about self-respect that I think are really helpful for us to consider. The first category is individual self-respect. And in this article, they note, it's part of everyday wisdom that respect and self-respect 
are deeply connected. In fact, it's difficult, if not impossible, for us to respect others if we don't respect ourselves. It's also difficult, if not impossible, for us to respect ourselves if we don't have the respect of others. You follow that? It's it's nearly impossible for us to respect others if we don't respect ourselves. And it's nearly impossible for us to respect ourselves if others don't respect us. And so I think it raises the question, how is it with you today, with me? We definitely live in a complex and confusing time. And it's hard to know the line between asserting ourselves and when it's time to take a step back. You know, when we feel trampled on or sort of bulldozed over, we lose our self-respect. But when we're the ones doing the trampling or bulldozing someone else, then we're not acting in a way that's respectful toward them. And this is a hard line for us to navigate uh, in so many different ways. Uh, For us who are parents uh, with our children, especially teenagers, Uh, It's hard to discern sometimes where is that line between preserving our own self-respect by laying down clear boundaries and holding to them in the expectations with our kids as they grow and where we should let let some of that line go uh, and give them freedom to roam and make some of their own mistakes and act in a way that's respectful toward them in a way that's age appropriate. With coworkers or neighbors or friends, uh, especially when we disagree, in our responses to some of the situations around us. Sometimes it's hard to know uh, where to hold our ground and argue our position and and sort of defend uh, the way that we see the world and graciously allowing someone else to share their view and live in the way that they feel most comfortable. Where do we navigate this line? Some of us are in really challenging relationships where we're getting trampled and we need the self-respect to say no more. We need to say like God did, I will be with you no more unless things change. Others of us might be the ones that are doing the trampling, trying to build up our own self-respect by disrespecting others. So this category of individual self-respect is a vitally important character quality or virtue for you and me to cultivate And it's one that we see so clearly displayed in God in this story. The second category of self-respect that we find in this this article from Stanford is the idea of institutional self-respect. It's increasingly, so this article says, increasingly part of political wisdom that both, both that unjust social institutions can devastatingly damage self-respect and that robust and resilient self-respect can be a potent force in struggles against injustice. So it's inviting us to recognize that injustices in our society and social structures can have a terribly damaging effect on individual self-respect of people who are caught up in those injustices. But on the other hand, through a strong and robust and vital self-respect, you and I can be a part of pushing back against those injustices from these social institutions. Now, I don't need to tell you about the headlines in our news um, this week, this month, goodness, over the last several months, uh, as we continue as a society to wrestle with the challenges of racial injustice, uh, of public health, of political mistrust, 
And it's just not hard to see that self-respect and a willingness to respect others has been lost in so many conversations in our culture. This godly quality has suffered harm in much of the discourse of our day. But it's encouraging that by cultivating this virtue in our own lives, we can be a part of spreading good and of a restoration of self-respect and respect for others that can help pave a way forward uh, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our churches, and even in our society. We can be a potent force for good and godliness in the day that God has called us to. I want to share two takeaways uh, from this idea of God's response by speaking the truth in love and acting with respect to himself and to Israel in his response to this situation. First takeaway is that God's self-respect is part of what makes him worthy of worship. Think about that. If, if he didn't keep his promises, if he didn't respect his own word enough to enforce this uh, on the nation of Israel when they disobeyed, then why should we? God's own self-respect is part of what makes him worthy of your worship and mine. And then the second takeaway is that out of respect for us, God offers us a path to become like him, both as individuals and as a society. In other words, we can learn respect in the way that God displays it. And in fact, that's precisely what we find as the story continues in Joshua chapter 7. In the second half of the chapter, what we find is that Israel did learn to respect God and themselves by purging those devoted things from their midst. And what Joshua did was that he followed exactly God's instruction for making things right. We're told that Joshua rose early in the morning. Remember, the people had prepared the day before. God was going to do an amazing thing. And so Joshua rose early in the morning, just as he did before the passing of the people through the river of, of Jordan, and just as he did before the battle of Jericho. So again, the writer of this uh, book tells us Joshua rose early in the morning. It's a signal that this was significant. This, this is something to pay attention to. This is a big day. So not only did Joshua obey, Achan actually was invited to respond. Uh, and what Joshua said to him was, give glory and praise to God by revealing the truth, which is what Achan ultimately did. Achan came forward and he confessed. And he said, it's true, I have sinned. I looked and I saw a beautiful robe. I saw some silver and some gold. I coveted them and then I took them and I hid them. Achan came clean and he confessed. And there's a lesson in that confession for us in the way that Joshua spoke to Achan. He said, give glory and praise to God by revealing the truth. And what's embedded in there is that when you and I tell the truth, we give glory and praise to God. It is something that glorifies him when the truth is brought out. And there's also something to see about Achan's sin that's, familiar, that's very familiar in the biblical story. Achan said that he saw this forbidden, um, these forbidden possessions, he coveted them, and then he took them. And I wonder if that rings strangely familiar to you, because that's exactly what happened in the opening chapters of the Bible, before the fall of humankind into sin, into death. 
We're told that Eve looked at the forbidden fruit. She saw that it was something to be desired or coveted. And then she reached out and took it for herself and for Adam. And so the very same sequence of sin that caused the fall of humanity was actually about to be the, the, the destruction that came upon Achan and all of his household. Because the next thing we see is that all Israel devoted to destruction, Achan, his family, and all of his possessions. The very same thing that God called the Israelites to do uh, to the inhabitants of Jericho, the judgment that they were called to carry out in devoting all of the possessions of Jericho to destruction, this is what was to be carried out for Achan and all of his family as well. And the Israelites were told all Israel at Joshua's command participated in this event. Uh, it was a ceremonial purging of the devoted things from their midst so as to make things right with God. And it's interesting that Achan is a counterpoint to Rahab. Now, you may remember that uh, Rahab was a citizen of the, of the town of Jericho. She was a prostitute, and she hid the spies from Israel that came to spy out the city of Jericho before they uh, attacked it. And because she protected the men of Jericho, it was a sign of her belief in, in their God and what he was going to do. And because of that act of faith, Rahab was preserved when all of the rest of Jericho was devoted to destruction. And in exactly the opposite way, here you have Achan, who was part of the people of God, acting in a way that showed direct rebellion against God, a direct act of disobedience, and then his fate became that of the Canaanites. For both Rahab and Achan, it wasn't their bloodline that ultimately determined their fate. It was their relationship to what God had commanded. Now, if you're like me, uh, you might bristle at the idea that Achan's action was so uh, outrageous, as God calls it, that it deserved this kind of response from God. In fact, you might be able to think of other actions in the Old Testament or in Scripture that were worse than this that didn't get this kind of response from God. David, the king of Israel, committed adultery and then murder, and yet he was allowed to remain as king. And that's a legitimate question. It's one of the hard uh, elements of this text. And I'll just say just a couple of things about it quickly. Uh, first, it wasn't about the robe or the money uh, that made Achan's sin so severe. It was about the disrespect that he showed for God and his command. In the same way that Adam and Eve's sin wasn't so much about the fruit as much as it was taking uh, the respect that they owed to God, the honor and obedience that they owed to God, and taking it upon themselves to gain the kind of wisdom that they thought would be the fruit of the tree. So it's not about the fruit, it's about the obedience. Secondly, uh, the entire conquest of Canaan, the entire uh, book of Joshua where God called upon his people to destroy uh, men, women, children, all the possessions, everything uh, in this land of Canaan, it was a unique situation uh, in the in the history of Israel, as well as in really human history. And it was not unwarranted either. Um, we're told that the people of Canaan at this time uh, were a particularly vile and debased people. Uh, we're told that the practices of incest, adultery, child sacrifice, and a host of other things were commonly practiced in this culture. And it's not just witnessed to in the Bible, but archeologists have even found evidence of particularly heinous practices that went on in this time uh, in, the, in the, the land of Canaan uh, by these people. 
And in addition to that, way back in Genesis 15, when God was telling Abraham about the land that would eventually become the promised land, he told Abraham, in 400 years, I will give my people, your descendants, this land, but only after the sin of the Amorites, which is one of the the nations of Canaan, is complete. So in other words, God has been keeping record of this uh, nation, this, this collection of nations' sin for hundreds of years. And at just the right time, when the sin was uh, at its completion, God says, that's when it warranted his destruction. And yet, even still, there are other um, heinous practices that we find um, in the Old Testament, where God responds differently. So this is a unique kind of response that we find in this chapter uh, or or in this book. But there's one more lesson for us in this, and that's that even though God's judgment isn't always that severe, we are absolutely called upon to look at this and see how severely God sees disobedience, how important to God is the virtue of obedience. Obedience. Israel was told to stay away from the devoted things. And because Achan disobeyed, it cost him his life. But then when it turned, and Joshua and all Israel obeyed God's instructions for coming into a restored relationship with him, they obeyed. And God turned from his anger, and they were once again able to stand against their enemies. God takes obedience seriously. And then in the closing scene of this chapter, we find that they memorialized this event by making a stone memorial just like they did after they crossed the Jordan River. And it's yet another sign from the author of this book that tells us this was a big day. Lean in, pay attention to what you have to learn from what God did on this very important day. This was the day that Israel learned to respect God and themselves by purging the devoted things from their midst. To be a good leader requires an enormous well of respect for oneself and for others. And maybe more importantly, uh, for you and me to be the kind of people that follow after God and his ways that are worshipers of God and followers of Jesus, we are called to this kind of respect for ourselves and others in our personal lives, as well as in the institutions in the society around us. But more than learning from the example of God in this story, which I hope we all will do, learn from God's example himself, we should all marvel at the character and love of God in the gift of Jesus Christ, his son, who dignified himself, who dignified us so much as to give his own life as a sacrifice for you and for me. Unlike Achan, Jesus had done no wrong, that he would be alienated from God. You and I, we are the ones who have sinned against him, who have rebelled against him, who have disobeyed God and are alienated from him. But because of Jesus' sacrifice, because Jesus was devoted to destruction, you and I have the offer of an eternal life with our self-respecting God. So my invitation to you today is to lean into this offer that God gives in giving his son Jesus for our forgiveness, to pay for our disobedience so that you and I might walk in a relationship with him, be those agents of good in the days that he's called us to, and be examples for those around us in the way that we conduct ourselves 
with this godly virtue of self-respect and respect for those around us. May he use us for his glory today. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for this part of your word that shines a light on this important part of your character, the way that you respect yourself and the respect that you show to your people in making a way for us to know you and have life with you. Give us the courage, give us the willingness to obey that we might follow after you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.